Welcome to the first episode of MedTech Connect, a new digital health regulations podcast from Sightline. I'm your host, Hannah Daniel, and I'm a U.S. regulatory reporter for MedTech Insight. Since this is the first episode of this new series, I wanted to give a quick overview of what we'll cover. Every month, we'll interview a regulatory expert in the digital health industry who will help us break down policies and guidances coming out of the FDA, as well as other hot-button issues such as cybersecurity concerns, the rise of AI and ML, or the fight to protect medical data. New episodes publish monthly, so be sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and tune in to get notified when new MedTech Connect episodes come out. So in this episode, I interview Kyle Faget, health and life sciences partner at Foley and Lardner. We took a bird's eye view of software that can function on its own as a medical device, also known as software as a medical device. She outlined the challenges facing industry manufacturers that make it difficult to keep up with FDA regulations, as well as recent results from the FDA's software pre-certification program, and the importance of global collaboration in successfully regulating this rapidly innovating industry. Kyle, welcome to our show today. This is actually going to be the first episode of a new show about digital health regulations that we are planning to launch in the new year. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So can you start off by telling us, the listeners, what you do? Sure. So I'm Kyle Faget. I am the co-chair of the healthcare practice at Foley and Lardner, and I'm a partner in the Boston office. I advise a number of digital health companies um, on a whole host of issues. So I both advise on the provider side, so setting up um, and helping navigate the healthcare regulatory regime surrounding um, healthcare services via telehealth. Um, And then I also help clients understand the FDA regulatory process, both for drugs and devices. So I have a number of life science companies as well. Yeah. So we spoke earlier in the fall about a clinical decision software guidance. And so I was really interested in talking to you about software as a medical device because you're very knowledgeable in the field. So we're going to take a little bit of a bird's eye view at the start of this conversation. What are the challenges to regulating software as a medical device, both from governmental and industry standpoints? Sure. I mean, I'll start with industry because that's the position that I find myself like the lens through which I view this stuff more often than not, um, because clients come to me wondering whether they're going to be regulated or how they're going to be regulated. And I think that is the initial challenge faced by industry. So you have different kinds of innovators, um, traditional sort of medical device innovators, And then you've got tech innovators. Um, And often this is a very new space for tech innovators. And they don't even realize that they're regulated um, under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So sometimes step one for industry is just understanding that you could be regulated at all. Um, And then step two, I think this is agnostic to whether or not you're a medical, traditional medical device company innovator, or you're coming from the tech industry, um, understanding whether FDA actually regulates your product as a medical device under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, And making that determination is not a simple process, um, in part because FDA takes a somewhat risk-based approach to regulation. So 
on the one hand, um, it may be that your software as a medical device is in fact a medical device, but one for which FDA exercises enforcement discretion. Um, FDA's issued a host of different guidance documents, one of which you mentioned, the clinical decision support software, and that's a relatively new finalized guidance. Um, there's the general wellness policy for low-risk devices, medical device data systems, medical image stored devices, and medical image communication devices, um, and then policy for device software functions and mobile medical applications. And so those are sort of the list of, um, I think, key guidance documents. And you can sit down and read those. Um, they're really scintillating nighttime reading for sure. But I think a lot of times people read that stuff and walk away and say, okay, where do I fit exactly? And those guidances have um, lists of examples. And so you can, as a developer innovator, try and, um, figure out, locate yourself within those examples. But when you're going to market, you don't want to have a footfall the minute you commercialize, right? Um, and end up with a warning letter from FDA. It tends to be that uh, investors are not super excited to see companies get a warning letter from FDA. Um, FDA very recently um, issued a new digital health policy navigator tool, which sort of takes developers through like seven key questions. Um, and they really kind of mirror those guidance documents. So it might be an amalgamation of those guidance documents. And at the end, it spits out, yes, this is like likely not a device, or this is likely a device that FDA intends to exercise enforcement discretion. This is likely the focus of FDA's regulatory oversight and go from there. You know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend anybody rely on that particularly. It might be something to bring um, to council to have an informed discussion about what your approach should be. And there's also, of course, always the 513G process where an innovator can go get a very specific answer to where they fall in the regulatory scheme. And then that can be relied upon as, you know, a legal, um, a legally impactful document. But that, so that's, I guess, to sort of answer your question from industry perspective, it's knowing that you're regulated and then in the first place, and then understanding how you're regulated and walking through that analysis um, and making a decision about how much risk you're willing to undertake. You know, do you want to go through that 513G process and have something formal from FDA? Um, do you want to sit down with counsel and try and figure it out? Do you want to go through that digital health policy navigator? What's your approach going to be? Um, where you're going to find yourself on like solid enough footing that you feel comfortable that you're operating appropriately in the marketplace. That's the one side of the coin. The other side of the coin, I think, is extremely challenging, which is how do you regulate this stuff? Um, I don't envy FDA's shoes. I mean, some of, one of the hallmarks of digital health products and software as medical device is that they're iterative. So those products are updated frequently. Um, they have to, you know, companies have to continuously push out 
updates so that the software actually remains relevant in the marketplace, which means that you've got a changing device. Um, FDA issued guidance on when to submit a 510K for software change to an existing device. And it really focuses in on what I think of as three key issues is that, you know, is the change one that introduces a new risk or modifies an existing risk that could result in significant harm? Um, it was the change one um, to risk controls um, to prevent significant harm. And is the change one that significantly affects clinical functionality or performance specifications of the device? So you can look at those three key issues and try and make a determination about needing to submit um, for a change um, under a 510K. Again, that's another innovator struggle. But understanding exactly when to tell innovators that they should be submitting um, for a 510K um, clearance when an update is pushed out, I think is tricky. Um, and again, a lot of it's just because this is a really rapidly developing space. It's iterative. It's iterative in real time. Um, and so for FDA to sort of get its arms around, how do you regulate a space that's constantly moving it doesn't fit nicely into into like the traditional medical device regulatory paradigm where you have a stagnant device that you know has some kind of impact on the body and it either impacts the body in a safe and effective way or it doesn't and fda can do its analysis of whether or not the benefits outweigh the risks and go on from there, you're really talking about a product that is constantly evolving. And so that calculation also constantly evolves. So as a regulator, how do you get your arms around that? And I think it ultimately means that FDA, which has traditionally sort of been in this more stagnant environment, needs to understand how these products are designed, how they're developed, and how they're managed over time. To be honest, it means that FDA needs to have access to a whole host of real world data because that real world data is what developers are ultimately using to assess what changes are necessary and to provide updates. So like I say, the, the traditional structure isn't a perfect structure uh, for regulating these digital assets. I want to go back to something you said about the industry players um, and how there's a there is a divide between how tech companies approach regulation versus how medical device companies will approach regulation simply because of the the spaces that they've been in previously. So, do you have a sense of who is, I guess, manufacturing or creating more of these software as a medical device products? Is it more tech companies or more medical device companies still? You know, truthfully, it's both. Um, we see innovation in both. So if you look at like the pre-certification program and the nine major players there, some of them are were household names, absolutely. Some of them were not necessarily household names unless you like live in this world. You know, Apple obviously is a player. I don't think of Apple as a traditional medical device developer. Um, same with Fitbit. But then you see, you know, you've got like 
GE in there. You've got Johnson and Johnson. Um, Verily, maybe people know, maybe people don't. Healthy IO is like a new player in the space, and I'm not sure whether or not I would necessarily put that in the traditional medical device world or tech world, or maybe it's an amalgamation of both. And I think that you're starting to see that too, where companies see themselves as both tech innovators and medical device innovators all at once because they have always existed in this digital health space like that from inception that's how they see themselves so it's not necessarily like an apple that is you know having a new product line and stepping into these waters or like a J&J that's been a traditional medical device developer and is capitalizing on the digital health market you can look at a company like a healthy IO, and they're really a combination of both both worlds from the outset. Yeah, so kind of startups that are bridging the gap between strictly tech companies and medical device companies. That's right. And really, you know, COVID was such a huge catalyst for development in this space because we had an immediate need for digital health products that would allow for social distancing and still provide relevant health information that could be used by providers in a meaningful way, it just, this space just exploded. And I don't think that, you know, once the genie is out of the bottle, it's not going back in. So I think you really are seeing a lot of startups enter into this space with a foot in both worlds. I think sort of the question becomes, Well, are the innovators underneath it, what's their educational background and what's what's the world that they came from when they start that company? Um, And that may give you a better sense of how those companies think about regulation, if that makes any sense. It definitely does. I hope you're enjoying this episode of MedTech Connect. If you want to hear more podcasts like this, make sure to follow Pharma Intelligence on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts to be notified about the newest episodes. Also, don't forget to check out our daily news publication, MedTech Insight, at medtech.pharmaintelligence.informa.com for all the latest on medical devices in the EU and US. Again, that's medtech.pharmaintelligence.informa.com. Now, back to the episode. You mentioned the pre-certification program, which goes wonderfully into my next question, because the pre-certification program wrapped up this year, and then they filed a report, and it focused on kind of appraising manufacturers as well as the products they make and propose this new pathway for software as a medical device approval. But other than the report, like, where do we go from here? What does the FDA do after this pilot program? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I mean, let's just step back for a second and talk about the pre-certification program and what it hoped to accomplish, which you're right, was that there was going to be this new pathway Um, where FDA could look at organizations and make a determination based on how robust the quality of the organization is, the organizational excellence, uh, 
look at how they perform verification and validation of software, what they do with real world monitoring of the software, that type of thing, um, and be able to green light products based on that overall assessment of the company. And I think a couple of things, um, one that almost necessarily is an advantage um, for established entities, right? That are gonna have those robust processes and procedures um, in place. And so new market entrants, uh, even, even if that had moved forward, I think that new market entrants were gonna be potentially disadvantaged um, unless FDA could pull from that exercise some standards that it could use and apply. I think that's really what the report got to was, hey, you know what, we really weren't able to pull this generalizable standard set that would allow us um, to come up with a scalable framework um, that could be applied across the board. And FDA noted in that that it felt like it was at a deficit um, in terms of the information that it could actually acquire, even though the companies that were involved were very forthcoming, um, there were just statutory limitations on what it was that FDA um, could get at. And again, that sort of gets back to FDA's operating within a framework that didn't envision digital assets in the way that they're being utilized now. So, you know, where do we go from here? Um, you know, FDA made clear that it really wants more authority to request post-market data on products um, to ensure that companies are actually utilizing um, the total product life cycle approach to their software, that they are in fact gathering real world data. Um, they want more transparency about how companies are actually running their businesses and um, being able to hold them accountable. Does that happen in the current framework? Arguably, no. Um, so it may be that what has to happen sort of at the conclusion of the pre-certification program is that we need to really reimagine the regulatory framework that would be applied to software as a medical device so that FDA can actually regulate, regulate in this continuously iterative environment it finds itself. And that's just, like I say, I don't think that that has been fully addressed um, from a regulatory perspective. I think FDA is going to have to be a bit more clear. Um, so, okay, you know, in the report, they say that they need to have more authority, but what are they asking Congress for exactly? Um, be specific, FDA. What do you need to be able to get your arms around this environment and regulate appropriately? And that's where I sort of get back to this idea that FDA really needs to dig in and understand the design, the development, and the management of these products so that it can effectively regulate. But I think we're just, we're going to see a new scheme come out of this. The scheme that they envisioned, I think, um, was limited and they found that it wasn't necessarily scalable in the way they wanted it to be. So, okay. Now they're back to the drawing board and we'll wait and see what they do. But I do think that there's got to be some specificity, particularly if there's an ask of Congress um, to legislate in some way that provides FDA additional authority.
So in a way, they're asking for more authority so that companies have to submit fewer approvals in order for them to just keep up with the market. Well, I think the issue sort of becomes, how does FDA on an ongoing basis verify for itself that these products are safe and effective, that these products are doing what they're supposed to be doing in the marketplace, right? So this is always a question uh, when you have these products out there. So let's say you have a product out in the marketplace that says it's going to measure a specific endpoint. Is it actually doing that? And is that endpoint actually signifying what we think it's signifying for the purposes of clinical decision making, for example? And those are all the places where I think FDA is pretty well positioned to answer some of those baseline questions. But then as that technology evolves over time, how does FDA keep its eye on that evolution? Um, And I think there does have to be a regulatory pathway that allows FDA to look in on the iterative process in a way that right now I don't think FDA does or can, not meaningfully. And of course, you know, as you suggested, there's got to be some kind of risk-based approach because FDA can't possibly be on top of every single digital asset that's out in the marketplace right now. That would be totally unthinkable. So then there's got to be some line drawn in the sand where FDA says, listen, we think that this particular product is potentially risky, that if it fails, um, that, you know, it potentially is life endangering, and therefore we really need to know what's happening with this. And so if there's an update that's pushed out, we need to know that that update is actually doing what it's supposed to do, and it's doing it correctly over time. So speaking of updates, one of the things that's important with updating medical devices specifically is keeping on top of cybersecurity threats. So, you know, I know this is a huge topic, so feel free to address whatever part you'd like. But are cybersecurity regulations right now able to keep up with software as a medical device innovation? And if not, what do you think needs to change about them? Yeah, that's a loaded one for sure. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, in short, one word answer, no. I don't think that the regulations are keeping up with innovation. Um, it, it's tricky. It's tricky in the United States for a couple of reasons. So one, um, you know, you've got HIPAA on the one hand. So you've got a law that is 20 plus years old. Um, it was not written to apply really to digital products as they exist now. Um, and these digital products that maintain PHI that often, um, send PHI wirelessly, um, and often they are being sent to covered entities. And so you've got the security rule in place. And so, fine, you have this old architecture that may or may not actually address the digital assets and um, cybersecurity threats. And then you've got layered on top of that, as I suggested, in the United States, you've got state level cybersecurity. And so I think a couple of things. One, you've got multiple agencies that have a vested interest in the outcomes here um, that probably should be working together um, to come out with some kind of federal um, approach to this issue, right? Because 
even the state-specific cybersecurity, if you're an innovator and you're trying to have your software as a medical device comply with the cybersecurity laws that are applicable, a patchwork across states is very, very difficult in terms of compliance. Um, much easier if there's actually a federal standard. And then, you know, you've got oversight and enforcement. So, yeah, you know, FDA has published some guidances um, on management of medical device cybersecurity risks. And quality systems regulations do require manufacturers to address cybersecurity risk. But FDA isn't OCR, um, Office of Civil Rights. And uh, FDA isn't FTC. So to the extent that you're dealing with PHI being sent um, to non-covered entities, so entities that are not regulated by HIPAA, for example, um, and, you know, in the direct-to-consumer marketplace, we're seeing more and more of those kinds of assets. So that's probably a place for FTC um, to play a role as well. And so really multiple agencies, um, I know that FDA does currently work with the Department of Homeland Security on cybersecurity risks, of course, but there's the healthcare piece of it too. So you've got to have OCR at the table as far as I'm concerned, and you need to have probably FTC at the table too, because um, you know not every digital asset is going to fall into the purview of HIPAA. So that's, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think right now um, the applicable regulations are outdated. Um, where we're seeing new cybersecurity regulation, um, we're seeing a lot of it at the state level, which is going to be make it even more difficult for innovators to actually comply um, with those risks. And I think that when compliance becomes extremely difficult, if not operationally impossible, what you start to see is entities just ignore um, those regulations because it's not possible to comply with them or they stop innovating, which is the last thing that you want to see. And, you know, right now, FDA is definitely taking some steps for enforcement. They issue safety communications, um, which contain information about the vulnerability and recommended actions um, that patients, providers, and manufacturers can take to try and shore up any kind of security risks. But again, this is bigger than just FDA, I think, and it needs to be addressed as such. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't seem like something FDA can tackle by itself if we've seen what has been previously happening. And also, you know, like you were saying, they just don't have the scope um, that they need because it's covered by so many different agencies. But getting to my last question, you know, we know how the how the U.S. is regulating software as a medical device. We kind of went over the shortfalls, what they might be doing right, um, how they're trying to rectify some of these policies to keep up with the modern age. But do you have any insight onto how it's regulated in other countries and if there are some things the U.S. can learn in a good way or a bad way from them? So it's a good question. And I mean, the US definitely takes part in the International Medical Device Regulators Forum. And the first draft clinical decision support software um, followed and adopted much of what was um, put out by 
um, the IMDRF, which was later discarded in the final guidance. Um, so I do think that there is crosstalk in that forum. Um, and I don't know that anybody has a perfect answer. I think if there's another system and, you know, my practice is really based in the U.S., but if there's another system that is familiar to us that I think is probably suffering from some of the same issues that the United States is, is the EU. Um, you can't perfectly import what they're doing. They take, you know, a risk-based approach um, similar to the United States, but it's a different regulatory scheme. And so, you know, whether or not it perfectly translates for use by FDA is another question. I'm not familiar enough with um, other regulatory regimes across the world to be able to say, yes, you know, Japan's doing this correctly, whereas we aren't. But I would hope that through some of these international conversations that FDA keeps its mind open to learning how to regulate um, and watches what's working and what's not working in other countries, because honestly, that may be the best way to see what the path forward here is, because I think, you know, with pre-certification, and I don't, I don't know that the pre-certification being taken off the table is a super huge surprise to some people out in the world. Um, there were definitely some questions about it when it first started. And, you know, right now, we're going to have to reimagine. FDA is going to have to reimagine. Legislators are going to have to reimagine. And so, as I said, I think right now, um, legislators are probably waiting for FDA to say and for industry to say, here's what we think needs to happen. Um, and something does need to happen because some of these products that are out there, um, you know, they could present some real risk to patients and present patient harm and or provide misinformation so that there are diagnostic errors made and things like that. And nobody actually wants to see that. And so hopefully FDA is able to imagine a regulatory framework for this that works and doesn't stifle innovation on the one hand. Um, you know, obviously that anything they do is gonna have to comport with the 21st Century Cures Act, which was really put in place to try and inspire innovation as opposed to um, block innovation, but regulation often has the effect of stifling innovation um, in favor mm -hmm. of you know patient safety. And so there's there's got to be some balance in there. Um, but you know clearly we haven't quite found it yet. So you know to sort of circle back to your question, could we learn from other countries? Absolutely. The one I'm most familiar with is the EU. They take a risk-based approach, much like FDA. I don't know that they have found the perfect balance yet either. Um, and so it's really incumbent on FDA, I think, to watch what other countries are doing and learn from mistakes and wins from other jurisdictions. It seems like international collaboration is going to be really important as software just innovates at you know at the speed of light for a <laughs> lack of a better term 
But that is all the questions that I had for today. So I just really wanted to thank you for your time and your insight. And it was such a wonderful interview. Glad to do it anytime. And thank you so much for having me. MedTech Connect is a podcast by Sightline. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, check out MedTech Insight. There you can find any articles we mentioned in this episode and more articles on the subject. This podcast and others by Sightline are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn, so make sure to follow to get the latest updates on when new episodes are published. Thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for more MedTech Connect episodes every month.